1: Hanging on to your sanity, yeah, I know it's it's kind of a full-time job. <laughs> it's not easy. It's it takes supreme effort on a day-to-day basis just to stay rooted in reality. And you know the bad news is it's probably not going to get any easier. So I, I won't uh, you know I won't try to convince you. That, oh yeah, it's just you know all you have to do is just you know stop feeling bad. You know you wouldn't tell that to somebody with with uh, you know a clinical depression or something. But I'm here to help you, not with, uh, you know, so much telling you this is what you should think, but I'm going to offer you some alternative viewpoints for your consideration, what you do with that information. Well, that's entirely up to you. If it makes sense, then I would invite you, go ahead, assimilate it into your life, and change your thinking accordingly. And if it doesn't, feel free to reject it, because I don't have the answers, like you. I'm a person who's seeking truth, doing my best to stay rooted in reality, and you know, for the most part succeeding, at least I hope I'm succeeding. <laughs> if not, I will, uh, you know, still give it the old college try. I wanted to share with you, uh, this is just, a, it's a, it's a tweet that I saw the other day, but it, it hit home for me because I think it, it very clearly sums up the problem that we're facing and it's it's not going to get easier. I've read a number of articles this week about AI and how it's, AI is progressing much, much faster than than a lot of people anticipated it would. In fact, uh, my friend Ruben sent me a clip from Glenn Beck that I thought was was actually one of the more informative clips I've seen. And Glenn does a pretty good job of breaking things down. But what's happening is AI is learning, and you're seeing AI start to crop up, not just in chat, GPT, you know, writing things. We'll or do, do this in the style of Dr. Seuss or whatever. And it does a remarkable job of that. But you're also seeing AI make possible deep fakes. And I'm talking perfect voice mimicry, uh, video mimicry to where it is really tough to tell what's real and what isn't. It used to be, well, I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes. Or I'll believe it when I hear it with my own ears. It's pretty easy to fake stuff. So I, I think we're probably approaching a time where this is going to be put to use in, do I dare say, not so good ways. And will be used to, you know, drive people out of the public square, perhaps unjustly. Maybe some of them justly. But here's, here's what the tweet says. Seb Lee is the individual who tweeted this a couple of days ago. And he says, if you thought the last few years was fake, wait until you see the next 10. He says, the field is going to be hijacked by so much imagery, you will literally be unable to tell what is true and what is not. Unless you disconnect. See, he left us an out, and that's, to me, that's the cool part, is I think he's right. Part of keeping your sanity, part of keeping your your toes in reality is going to be a product of whether or not you are plugged in, you know, whether you're a slave to your screen. We're going to be talking about screens a little bit today, particularly as they pertain to kids, but at some point, you're going to have to be willing to disconnect. Now, look, I'm I'm struggling with that myself. Because being connected is kind of, you know, what I do. It's it's kind of, it's, it's how I keep a roof over my family's head. So I'm trying to work out in my mind, okay, how, what's that going to look like? I think it starts with taking regular breaks, regular media fasts, just to, to, to make sure that you're not getting addicted to the daily dread supplement. And I understand. Well, Brian, sometimes you're the one who's ladling out that supplement. I get it. Yep. There's sometimes I'm talking about some pretty hard things. And some people, you know, want to hear, tell us, tell us what's next. <clears throat> what's the next shoe that's going to fall? Well, funny you would ask. <laughs> because I have, I, I think I have just, just that story. So I, you've probably, if you, if you are online, if you're on Twitter or whatever, you have probably noticed that there has been a, a fair amount of news coverage here recently of uh, a subway attack that ended very badly for the aggressor a mentally ill homeless man by the name of Jordan Neely, well-known to police. I think he was arrested more than 40 times, has a violent assault, a felony. In fact, he's actually got a felony assault warrant out for him. And this guy rides the subways in New York threatening people. He's pushed people, you know, onto the tracks, you know, just he he or pushed them toward the tracks when trains were coming. Just not, first of all, he's not an individual who was, was, uh, dealing with a full deck. But he also has been an extremely threatening presence on the New York subways. And apparently a couple days ago, he uh, was threatening some people and ran into a Marine, or at least, I don't know, theres I know there's no such thing as a former Marine, but he ran into a guy who served in the Marines who uh, took him down and put him into a chokehold to to control him. And unfortunately for... Jordan Neely, he struggled and struggled, and this guy held him in this chokehold for about 15 minutes until authorities arrived. Well, when they arrived, Jordan Neely was dead. And so I guess there's there's a couple of lessons here. One is, you know, for, for those who see somebody doing a rear naked choke, and you think, well, that looks easy enough. You just put people to sleep. Yes, it will put people to sleep, but it's also pretty dangerous. Now, I, I say this as someone who has uh, you know, a degree of training in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And we regularly used and practiced the rear naked choke. It's astonishing how quickly you can render a person unconscious. But then again, you're putting a stranglehold on them, and you're compressing the carotid arteries on either side of their neck and shutting off flow of blood to the brain. Yeah, that will kill a person if you keep it on long-term. Well, this is this is the new George Floyd moment, apparently, that some people were waiting for. And the narrative is, well, this white Marine killed this poor, homeless black man for no reason at all. And, you know, I, I get it. It fits their narrative. It, now, there's video, fortunately, that shows... This Marine, uh, who is unnamed at this time, he was uh, taken into custody by police. He was questioned. He was released without charges. That doesn't mean that, you know, some Soros-backed DA, Mr. Bragg, we're looking your way, uh, uh, isn't going to come after him, you know, lock, stock, and barrel. But the bigger lesson that I'm seeing from this, and, you know, I'm trying to say this with with no bravado, no chest-thumping of, yeah, you know, mess around and find out, Look, it's, it's a tragedy that this man is dead. At the same time, 40-plus arrests, an active warrant already out there for him, and yet he has been a regular feature on the subway. Numerous people have come forward talking about how he threatened or assaulted them. He was, at the time, threatening to assault people. And the authorities were not dealing with it. They just, you know, Sorry. You know, sucks to be used, what they think, for the, the passengers on those subway cars. Well, when confidence in the law breaks down, and I'm just going to throw this out there as a hypothetical, when when people cannot trust the law to protect the law abiding, when criminals are released or their, their charges are reduced or dropped altogether, as we have seen, unless, of course, they paraded in the Capitol on January 6th, people lose confidence that the the system is going to protect them. And so that means that the people will sometimes have to stand up and protect themselves. I believe that's what happened in this case. And when people do have to stand up and protect themselves, guess what? They go a lot harder than even the police would. Now, sometimes it's due to lack of training. Sometimes it's just due to the fact that the problem needs to be solved right then and there. I don't believe the guy who put put Mr. Neely in the chokehold intended to kill him. But I don't believe the narrative, which is now being used to rally people. Oh, look at this demonstrations! You know, somebody's called it. You know, oh, we're having our bum Floyd or hobo Floyd moment. Just like George Floyd was used to galvanize and to justify, if you can use it that way, uh, you know, protests, riots, looting, beating, intimidation of people. This is probably the catalyst that's going to be used to launch uh, a lot of calculated unrest for this coming summer. And that's that's a sad thing. But we got to keep in mind that uh, one of the things that set this in motion was the fact that the guy, Mr. Neely himself, was actively threatening people and just simply sitting there and taking it was not an option. At least for those who were there, you know, they perceived enough of a threat that this guy jumped into action and, and at risk to himself subdued, you know, what he perceived as a threat. So, I, I know that may seem like kind of a dichotomy here. Well, what are you saying then that this was a good thing? It was a good thing in the sense that people stepped up and took care of what needed to be taken care of. It's a tragic thing in the sense that this man's actions, meaning the, the homeless man, Mr., Mr. Neely, his actions ended up costing him his life. I think God weeps, you know, when we see people who are crushed by the enormity of their own mistakes. So I wouldn't be celebrating the fact that, uh, you know, yay, this guy, you know, he got what was coming to him. What's crazy to me is that it got to the point that uh, the public had to step up and do something in the first place.
0: And I worry that maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to see. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Look, I'm sorry to get
1: off on kind of a uh, depressing note here, but boy, I've never been more grateful not to live in a big city. I think the potential for, well, it's already dangerous. I mean, come on. The, I spend enough time online, I see enough videos on Twitter to know that uh, if you are perceived just based on your skin color, of having either disrespected or failed to show the proper amount of uh, servility, you know, before someone who's got a chip on their shoulder, um, you're going to get attacked. And it seems very random sometimes, you know, the, the, the videos that are coming out now of, of people just, you know, looting stores. They call it shoplifting. Well, you know, they're not going to charge us with anything under $900. They won't file charges. But the breakdown of law is really kind of a remarkable thing to behold. And I'm very grateful that I don't live in a city where, you know, that's, that's the norm and you have to dodge, you know, you know addicts and, uh, you know, excrement on the sidewalks and so forth. And I'm, I'm not denigrating people who are, for whatever reasons, you know, okay with, with all of that or, you know, well, that's the price of living, you know, where I have all these choices in a nice metropolitan area. Great for you. But as I'm watching the unraveling going on, man, I'm thinking smart people. Are not only planning, but they are now executing their exit strategies from the cities. Just because this stuff is not getting better. Now let's shift gears. Let's talk about something that's uh, hopefully a little more uplifting. And yeah, that would be the struggles that our kids are having right now. What? Well, that's not so uplifting, but no, but but it's true. Mental health for young people right now is a is a supreme challenge. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to who have uh, have. Pointed to the the risk of suicidal ideation and actual suicide attempts on the part of young people, and it's at, at levels that I don't I don't think have ever been seen before in our society. And I understand this is a very tender subject for some people, look myself included. But the struggles are very real, and and. Like many, I have to wonder, you know, do screens, you know, the fact that online stuff, social media and so forth, the ever-present screens, do they have something to do with this? Lenore Skenazy has an article that was published on intellectualtakeout.org, why it's so hard to get kids off their screens. I think it's worth considering what she has to say here. And she starts with, with the line, how many of you have closed your email and then immediately reopened it because you might have just gotten an email? Now, Lenore Skenazy laughter rippled through the audience, including me, as we listened to Emily Cherkin give a talk at the Brearley School in Manhattan about tech and kids and us. Parents, kids, educators, email addicts. Cherkin, also known as the Screen Time Consultant, was a seventh grade teacher in Seattle from, 20, from 2003 to 2013 In 2003, almost none of her students had phones. By 2013, 95% of them did. So she spent the 10 years since leaving the classroom... ...studying what happens to kids and families when tech changes everything. Now she told the audience, I still remember an analog childhood. But today's kids won't... ...unless we make sure that some of that old-fashioned engage-with-the-world time... ...is deliberately preserved. But at the moment... Parents are overwhelmed, as are schools. Skenazy says at home, parents are finding it extremely tough to pry their kids from screens. There's a myth that my child should be able to get off screen without a meltdown, says Cherkin, but it's not a fair fight. Tech companies have studied what makes an activity sticky and applied those lessons with a vengeance. The endless scroll, the fact that one video leads instantly to another, the pings and likes and emojis... All of these are part of what's called pervasive design or what Churkin calls manipulative tech. It's a mashup of psychology and technology, and it's designed to keep you engaged. Now, if you're like me, this is about the point I went, whoa, it's not just the kids that are struggling with this. I see this too. My dopamine receptors perked up and went, oh, I guess I do that as well. Lenore Skenazy says, and it's just as hard to drag a gambler from the slot machines. Next time could be a winner as it is to drag our kids away from their screens and us from our emails. She says there's a reason drug dealers use the same term for their clients as tech companies do users. Both are dedicated to creating addiction. Now, the upshot is a phenom dubbed displacement, activities online displacing activities in real life. But it doesn't mean all online time is meaningless or evil. But it does mean that other things are getting squeezed out. So for kids, those things include playing in real life, exploring in real life, and being with their families. How can parents make sure tech doesn't displace too much of those well, Chirkin says you don't have to. She says, "Don't say to pull the plug tomorrow," or she doesn't say, "Rather to pull the plug tomorrow and go live in a yurt somewhere." But she does have some suggestions that Lenore Skenazy says strike her as realistic. First, she says, "If you haven't given your child a smartphone yet, wait as long as you can." Now, your kids may fear that they're missing out, but ironically, the fear of missing out that hits once kids do get a phone is even worse. Now they can see every event they weren't at as well as every other fun thing in the world that they're not part of. If your kids already do have phones, set limits. And even if you haven't to date, for instance, if you don't want the phones at the dinner table anymore, you can simply say, I forgot to teach you that and then fill in the blank. I forgot to teach you that phones have no place at the table or phones don't belong in the bedroom at night. Or whatever you now think makes sense. She says schools, too, can keep kids focused and actually happier by not allowing phone use during the day. Cherkin cited a study, study rather, that found kids doing worse on math tests were on their phones, or when phones, rather, were on their desks, or worse, sorry, let's try that again, were on their desk or even in their backpacks. The distraction was just too great. So her point is they have no place in the classroom. But this is the suggestion I liked, too. And this is one that's got me thinking, okay, how can I put this one to work? Bring back what was displaced. Keep schools open for mixed age, no phones, free play in the afternoon, or even before school. What a simple way for kids to have fun and arguments and everything else developmentally rich in life. Displace some screen time, and she says when our kids grow up, they'll have some analog memories from back in the day. Then they can worry about making sure their own kids have some, too. Now, that may sound like, well, it's kind of trite, a little too simple if you ask me, but for those of us who grew up without, you know, the ubiquitous cell phone in our pocket and the camera and the video camera and everything, you know, it was a much different childhood. I mean, there's a few of us remember what it was like to call collect, right? Okay, the movie's out. I need mom to come and pick us up. So we'd call collect. Will you accept a call from Brian? That was my mom's signal to say no and hang up, and come get me. Come on, we weren't the only ones who did that. <laughs> but, you get my point. If you called somebody and they weren't home, guess what? You didn't talk to them until the next time you got to see them, or the next time you called and they were home. Even answering machines were kind of an aberration. Not that many people had them. And yet, somehow, life went on. I know, it's, it's unthinkable today. Today, if we try to call somebody and they don't answer, huh, Hope everything's okay. Let me text them. Hey, are you okay? It's been five minutes. Oh, they haven't answered. Hey, are you okay? Suddenly we're, we're you know, compulsively texting and trying to call. Oh, I better send them an email or maybe I'll ping them on social media. Hey, everything all right? Anyway, you get the point. It's not just the kids that are struggling with too much screen time. It's all of us. And yet, I think if we look back to that time, if you can remember prior to 2007, when, you know, the iPhone came out, I think most of us can remember that uh, we have some pretty good analog memories, too. In fact, uh, you know, I still have some very fond memories of, of growing up and going out and doing things and playing and using our imaginations and so forth that didn't involve sitting there endlessly scrolling, waiting for the next thing to grab my attention. Now, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here. Maybe it's something you don't struggle with, but... I'm fairly convinced there are people right now that are trying to deal with this, especially with their kids or their grandkids. And I thought Lenore Skenazy actually has some really good advice. If you don't follow her, she's really kind of a fun person to follow. I mean, come on, she's been dubbed the worst mother in America. Wouldn't you want to know just a little bit more? (laughs) She knows a thing or two about raising, you know, kids who can do for themselves. All right, we'll take a quick
0: break. Back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here for my
1: sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and also TMCP Nation. Dot .com. You can check my show notes for links to take you to each one of those sponsors. You'll find my show notes at the bryanhyde By the way, you'll also find every episode that I've done over the last 3 years faithfully stored there and archived for your enjoyment. It's crazy. It's it's kind of fun to go back. I like to go back and just look at the show notes and see, okay, what was news a year ago? What was what was going on? Cuz I move from one thing to the next and I tend to forget. I'm, I'm at that age. If I've slept since the last time I saw it, oh, well, wow, I'd forgotten all about that. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, let's talk about something over which you and I really have very little control. Now, I know we're not supposed to s- obsess about these things, and we're not supposed to spend time worrying, but at the same time, the whole debt ceiling crisis right now is very instructive for anyone who's paying attention. And when Doug Casey weighed in on this in an interview with International Man, I thought you might appreciate his take on the debt ceiling farce and he says why the U.S. should declare bankruptcy. Now, International Man says, look, the U.S. federal government has raised the so-called debt ceiling 104 times since 1944. Shouldn't they call it a debt target instead of a debt ceiling? Is this whole thing a farce? Doug Casey responds, the situation is completely and irredeemably out of control. It's a farce. Quite laughable, except for the fact it's so deadly serious. Can they reduce the debt ceiling or the amount of debt or even slow down its growth at this point? The answer is no. The situation is beyond redemption because most U.S. government expenditures go to pay entitlements. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and numerous other types of welfare. So those things will be very hard to cut at this point. Breaking the doggy dishes of millions of corrupted Americans would cause unrest. Plus the so-called defense budget, which mostly supports the military industrial complex while fomenting conflict. It's actually much larger than disclosed because it should include $50 billion of foreign aid, the cost of running outrageously large embassies all over the world, the CIA, and of course, black budgets of all types. He says, meanwhile, all U.S. government agencies are bent on expanding themselves. The bureaucrats who run them realize that if they don't grow the budget every year... They reduce their chances of going from one GS level to the next. Their success is based upon managing more people and spending more money. Naturally, all of these agencies grow like cancers. So, as a result, the debt ceiling is nothing more than fiction. It'll stay out of control unless there's a total reorganization of the government, which itself would be risky. And that's not going to happen until we have a financial catastrophe that leaves absolutely no alternative. Now, at this point, International Man asks, you've previously stated the U.S. government should default on the national debt. What are the reasons for that? Now, Doug Casey says, I know it sounds outrageous to propose the U.S. government default on its national debt. Of course, they don't think it will ever be necessary because as several high-level government officials have pointed out, they can just print money to pay off the debt. However, he says, I disagree. What are the reasons for doing something as seemingly catastrophic as defaulting on the debt? Well, he says, I'll give you at least five. Stick with me let's conduct an outrageous but not unreasonable thought experiment. First, barring default, future generations of Americans will be turned into serfs to pay off the debt. Profligate people have run up the debt, but everybody's children and grandchildren are stuck with having to pay it off. Now, he comes right out and says, that's simply immoral. If you have any care for the future at all, future generations should be saved from becoming serfs to pay it off. Second, it would punish the enablers who lend the us government money people who lend the us government money facilitated by doing all the stupid and destructive things facilitated by doing all the stupid and destructive things it does his point is they shouldn't be rewarded they should be punished third he says official default is better than the alternative it's like a hundred story building that's about to collapse if that's the case should you wait until it collapses randomly and unpredictably or should you have a controlled demolition It's not a pleasant alternative, but it is the better alternative. Fourth, default would make further borrowing on the part of the U.S. government impossible, at least for a while. It would be exposed as an untrustworthy entity, like the Argentine government, which defaults all the time. People would still idiotically lend it it more money, but a default might slow down the rate of increase in the U.S. government's size. And fifth, it's almost necessary that the debt goes away to help definancialize the US economy. He says the US is tremendously overfinancialized. It's all about buying, selling, creating and packaging financial instruments. Government debt with the help of the Fed is the actual engine of inflation. Defaulting on the national debt would pave the way for the reinstitution of a more sound, re- redeemable commodity-based money. People would have to concentrate more on real wealth than on phony financial wealth. Actual engineering as opposed to financial and social engineering. Now, of course, an objection reasonable people would make, well, is if you default on the debt, it's going to be a catastrophe. Now, Doug Casey says, my answer is that because just because all the paper debt of the U.S. government goes away doesn't mean the real wealth in the world will disappear. The farms, factories, technologies and skills of the workers will still exist, but on a sound foundation and with some new owners. Furthermore, he says, I'd point out that the U.S. government isn't we the people. It's become a discrete entity with its own interests, like a giant corporation. If it declares bankruptcy, it's a problem for its employees and clients much more than for you, the taxpayer. Now, those are just some of the arguments he says I'd make for defaulting on the national debt. But it's just rather an academic thought experiment. The powers that be will prefer to build the current house of cards higher, probably propping it up with FX controls, central bank digital currencies, a social credit system, much higher taxes, more inflation, price controls, and God knows what else in the years to come. His point, though, is that the default will happen. But it will happen more gradually through the subtle fraud of inflation, which is actually the very worst and most dishonest way To default. At this point, international man asks him, Paul Krugman and other mainstream economists have proposed the U.S. government issue a trillion-dollar coin to buy up the federal debt. That serious people can put forward such a clownish solution illustrates that it's all a ridiculous charade. And then asks Doug, what's your take? Doug Casey responds by saying, well, when you're using funny money as a substitute for real money, it's inevitable that soothsayers will come up with ridiculous solutions. Krugman isn't an economist. He's a political apologist and a fool. He doesn't describe the way the world works, but the way that he want, he'd like to make it work, using coercion and fraud, not volunteerism in the market. In other words, every idea he has is so stupid that it's criminal. And Doug Casey says the solution to this problem is to go back to commodity money. Money should be used, once again, just as a medium of exchange and a store of value. It can no longer be used as a political football. And the U.S. government should be cut in size by 50%, 75%, or even 95%. Who knows how deeply you can cut the size of the U.S. government until you try doing it. But it's necessary, at least if what's left of the idea of America is going to survive. So, having commodity money will itself greatly downsize the U.S. government. The U.S. state has become a behemoth and a parasite. It's a far bigger danger to the average American than the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, or all of them together. Returning to sound money in a tiny government would make for a more pleasant, prosperous, and safer world, although the process of doing it would be unpleasant for some people. Now, he says, on the bright side, the only people who will be seriously hurt are the parasites living off the government. But he says, I say to hell with the parasites, they should be inconvenienced. Now, from here, he's uh, he's asked uh, or it's it's noted that, well, it's hard to believe the U.S. government was ever debt free. Given the practical reality of the world, where do you see the federal debt going? What are the implications? His answer is, well, it's wonderful that Andrew Jackson paid off the national debt something that Alexander Hamilton, with his warped ideas of economics, sold to the country. But now it's almost impossible to pay off $32 trillion of acknowledged debt, scores of trillions of contingent liabilities, and scores of trillions more of unacknowledged debt. So he says, I'd like to point out that there actually have been previous defaults by the U.S. government. For example, Abraham Lincoln, during the war between the states, defaulted by printing up so-called greenback currency. Roosevelt defaulted on the debt, fraudulently devaluing the dollar, raising the price of gold from twenty fifty dollars to $35, but only after confiscating it from citizens. That was a default. Then there was Nixon in 1971, defaulting on the promise to pay foreign governments at $35 an ounce gold. Now the dollar is worth only one two-thousandth of an ounce of gold. So he says, let's not sugarcoat the situation. The real question is how to profit from the collapse of the overextended and corrupt empire. And he says, it makes sense to look at the historical precedent, like the Roman Empire. Was there any way to profit from the collapse of the Roman Empire? Well, some people did, I suppose. But the standard of living collapsed for almost all of its residents during the ensuing Dark Ages. Is there any way to profit from the collapse of Western civilization? That's so serious, he says, that it's almost like asking whether it's possible to profit from uh, an asteroid hitting the Earth. The best you can do is hope to insulate yourself as much as possible. Now, he says, at this point, the best way to be hurt the least or even possibly profit within a very bad scenario is to own gold, silver, and other commodities and to improve your skills as a speculator. He says, remember, most of the real wealth in the world is still going to exist. It's just going to change ownership. I got a link to this story in today's show notes. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back. This is our final segment today.
1: If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, please consider doing so. Just go to thebryanhideshow.com. Click on show notes at the bottom of the page. You'll find the subscribe button. Click it. It will ask you for your email. And that's pretty much it. No, I will not spam you. I will not share your email with anybody. I will just simply send you my show notes on those days that I do the show, which is pretty much every day, Monday through Friday. All right. Two quick articles that I want to share with you. This one, I I know there's been a lot of fact-checking out there that says, hey, that's not really true, but... Um, I, I'm going to economist uh, Peter Jacobson from the Foundation for Economic Education. His article published yesterday, yes, the government's new mortgage rule punishes, good, punishes borrowers with good credit scores, despite what fact checkers say. I've heard about this, and since uh, you know my wife and I are kind of, we're in the market, we're looking for a home, but I, I see this, and this kind of stuff just makes me think, you know, why is government so determined to, to do stuff to just tick me off? This is a good example of it, but I guess the problem is incentives matter, and when you change incentives, you change behavior. Peter Jacobson writes, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA, has begun to implement new rules for mortgage buyers, or borrowers, rather. Now, the result of these new rules is that everything else held constant, some borrowers with relatively higher credit ratings, who make larger down payments on houses, will pay higher fees than they did before. Likewise, some borrowers with worse credit ratings who make smaller down payments will pay less. Now, he says, I'm being very careful with my words above for a reason. Put bluntly, pedantic fact-checkers are trying to lie about this policy. And he gives some examples. Here's one from Snopes. Some people with higher credit scores will pay more in fees than those in similar situations under the old rule. Conversely, people with lower credit scores will pay less And even those with higher credit scores will pay less once the new plan takes effect. Now, these statements all all occur one right after another in the Snopes fact check. Now, statement two is pretty straightforward. Conversely, people with lower scores will pay less. Okay. But look at statements one and three. With this policy, some people with higher credit scores will pay more, but even those with higher credit scores will pay less. And Peter Jacobson says, how do we make sense of this blatant contradiction? Well, the answer is that Snopes is saying that some people with higher credit scores will pay lower fees in certain situations under the new rules. But the fact that some people with higher credit scores will pay lower fees does not mean all people with higher scores will pay lower fees. So, in other words, as Snopes points out, this policy does have winners and losers. Take their own example. They say borrowers in the credit score range of 720 to 739 who plan to make a down payment of 20% on the home value would see a fee increase from 0.75% under the old structure to 1.25% under the new plan effective starting May 1, 2023. So a borrower in that credit score range making a down payment of $80,000 on a home value of $400,000 would now have to pay an upfront fee of $4,000, that's 1.25%, on the loan of $320,000. Under the old plan, that fee would have been $2,400, or 0.75%. So the fee is higher than it used to be for a certain set of responsible borrowers putting 20% down. Snopes follows up by giving an example of how a different high credit score borrower in a different situation will have a lower payment. But the fact that some high credit borrowers will benefit doesn't change the fact that the losers of the rule change tend to be those with high credit who make large down payments. So if the government announced 10% higher income taxes on every woman in the country except Jill Biden, would it be wrong to say that the tax punishes women because one woman is exempt? Of course not. Fact-checking pedantry uses the exception to ignore the rule. This is a marvelous article, by the way, and he goes into much more detail. I would encourage you, please, take the time to read it. Not only is the Foundation for Economic Education a great resource if you really want to understand the world, but Peter Jacobson is is one of their great writers, and I just love his approach to economics because he keeps it simple enough that even I can understand it. And if I can understand it, I think pretty much anybody could. His bottom line here in this piece, though, is incentives matter. When you change incentives, you change behavior. No fact-check pedantry will change this fundamental truth. All right, one final article that I want to share, and I know this one's going to rub some people the wrong way. If you consider yourself a patriotic American, you know, you've probably been trained. We do not question the military under any circumstances. Still, I would ask you to consider... Jacob Hornberger's article, this was published on LouRockwell.com. the U.S. military's recruiting crisis is a positive sign. He says, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal demonstrates what a huge disaster conservatives are for our nation and for the rights and liberties of the American people. The article is entitled, The Military Recruitment Crisis is a Symptom of Cultural Rot." Co-written by a conservative veteran by the name of David McCormick, the article laments the fact that fewer Americans are signing up to join the military. McCormick views this as a sign of cultural rot in America, a rot that he suggests entails a reduction of patriotism and love of country. But Jacob Hornberger says, no, McCormick is wrong. Actually, the reduced recruitment numbers are a very positive sign for our country. In fact, they might well reflect that the American people are finally waking up to the fact that America has become a military nation one that's taking our country down from within and here he goes into some historical perspective which th- this is the reason i wanted to share this our nation was founded as a limited it was founded as a limited government republic one with a relatively small basic army if the constitution had proposed the national security state form of governmental structure under which we live today there is no possibility that our american ancestors would have accepted it That would have meant that the United States would have continued operating under the Articles of Confederation, a type of governmental structure whose powers were so weak that the federal government didn't even have the power to tax. Our American ancestors hated standing armies, which was the term used at that time to describe an enormous military intelligence establishment, like the one under which all of us today have been born and raised. That's because they knew that the biggest threat to their freedom and well-being lay not with Russia, China, or any other foreign regime. They knew that the biggest threat to their freedom and well-being lies with their very own government, especially one that has an enormously powerful military intelligence establishment to impose its will on people. James Madison, who most people would consider a patriot, pointed out that a standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. The means of defense against foreign danger have always been the instruments of tyranny at home. Does that not sound familiar? Henry St. George Tucker in Blackstone's 1768 commentaries on the laws of England said, Whenever standing, whether, wherever standing armies are kept up and when the right of the people to keep and bear arms is under any color or pretext whatsoever prohibited, liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. Now, he says that should sound familiar, too, especially given the incessant calls for gun control. A limited government republic with a small military force was our system of government for some 150 years. But following World War II, statists converted the federal government into the type of government that our ancestors had opposed, what they called a standing army and what we today call a national security state. Statists justified this revolutionary conversion, which was accomplished without even the semblance of a constitutional amendment, by claiming that there was an international communist conspiracy to take over the world. A conspiracy, they said, that was based in Moscow, Russia. Yes, that Russia. The federal government needed to be converted to a national security state, statists said, so that it too could wield the same omnipotent, totalitarian like powers that communist regimes wielded, such as assassination, torture, indefinite detention, coups, sanctions, invasions, and wars of aggression. The state said this was the only way to prevent America from going red. And that's how Americans came to live in a military nation, one that has been at war ever since. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Cold War, the war on communism, the war on terrorism, the war on Islam, the war on immigrants, the war on drugs, the Persian Gulf War, the Afghanistan War, the Iraq War, the Syria War, and now a renewed Cold War against Russia and China. On top of perpetual war has been the state-sponsored assassinations of political leaders, both foreign and domestic, on the grounds of national security. And he says the biggest beneficiary to this big racket has, not surprisingly, been the standing army itself, along with its vast army of voracious defense contractors who love feeding at the public trough. And this is reflected not only by the vast power the national security establishment wields within the federal governmental structure, one to which the rest of the federal government defers, but also by the almost trillion dollars in taxpayer-funded largesse that with the help of the IRS, it sucks out of the pockets of the American people. And through it all, Americans have been exhorted to support this deadly and destructive racket under the false rubric of patriotism and love of country. Jacob Hornberger says it's not a coincidence that authorities in Russia, which is also a national security state, are employing their same type of rubric to garner support from from Russian citizens for their campaign in Ukraine. So contrary to what David McCormick or any other conservative claims, the fact that an increasing number of young people refuse to become a part of this deadly and destructive racket is actually a very positive sign for our nation. Maybe, just maybe, we might well witness the dismantling of the national security state and the restoration of our founding governmental system of a limited government republic before the statists succeed in taking down our country from within.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.